Welcome to the Lake Point Church Weekend Messages Podcast. Thanks for joining us to hear the latest sermons happening at our church. We pray that God speaks to you in a timely way through this message. And if you're encouraged by this podcast, be sure to rate, review, and share it to help get the word out. You can find more digital content to feed your faith and our other podcasts by visiting lakepoint.church/digital. Now, let's tune into the message for today. Here's the deal. I just need y'all to know this. Today is our eight, my, mine and Jana's 18th anniversary. Today, like right now, today. So our, uh, our marriage can vote now. Our marriage can vote now. And, uh, and on top of that, my family is already sitting on a beach waiting for me. I moved my flight so I could preach this sermon. Okay? <laughs> now, you have to make it worth it. All right, make it fun. Here we go. We are in, uh, listen, I basically planned this entire Getting It Back series to get to this week. So here's where we are. We are in, this is my last week preaching Getting It Back. And this is the week in Nehemiah where this whole time we've been talking about them getting it back, the power, the presence, the anointing of God. And you are about to read what has historically in church history been called, you're about to read the story of a revival. That, that's what you're about to read. Nehemiah 7, 8, and 9 is about a national revival. Now, I need to explain what that is, and then we're going to get right into it, okay? Theologians historically distinguish between the ordinary operations of the Spirit and the extraordinary operations of the Spirit. That most of the time, that like, man, it's, it's, it's the quote-unquote ordinary operations of the Spirit. Most of the time, it's like pastors are preaching the Bible, churches are discipling people, they're meeting needs, you know, disciples are being made, people are being baptized. Like, that's ordinary, that stuff is ordinarily happening. But every now and then in history, the God of heaven decides to break open the floor of heaven and heaven kisses earth and God decides to do something in days in his power that would otherwise take decades without his power. That is what we are getting ready to read about in Nehemiah 7 and 8. Now, before I even get into it, all right, I need you to know there, there are certain sentences that I say that I say them all the time because I want them to get on you. Like, I, I want them to really get on you. And this is one of them, that the Bible is not an old book. The Bible is a timeless book. So it doesn't just tell us what happened. It tells us what always happens. This concept of revival, spiritual awakening, like supernatural uh, heaven-touching earth uh, is something. It doesn't just happen in the Bible. It has happened all throughout history. I'm going to give you three examples to kind of stir up our faith. And then I, 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 want, I want to go all the way in. Okay, here, here, here we go. In... On September 23rd, 1857, somebody put a sign on the outside of a church in the middle of downtown New York City. All the sign said was, prayer meeting 
from 12 to 1 o'clock, stop 5, 10, or 20 minutes, or the whole hour as time permits. At noon, there was one person praying. His name was Jeremiah Lamphere. By 12.30, one other person joined Jeremiah Lamphere. By 1 p.m., there were six businessmen in the middle of downtown New York City that were praying together. And they looked around and they were like, man, the Lord met us. Let's do it again next week. The next week, there were 20 people. The third week, there were 40 people. And they decided this should happen daily. That prayer meeting in the middle of downtown New York City, in the matter of a few weeks, went from six businessmen to more than 5,000 people gathering every day to assault the throne of heaven for a move of God. So many people began to want to pray that they had to establish rules to keep people's prayers short because so many people wanted to pray and get into the room to pray. Eventually, 10,000 people were praying daily, and over the course of the next two years, a million Christians were added to American churches in a time where the entire population of New York City was not yet two million people. Now, <laughs> maybe what I'm getting ready to say was the greatest miracle of them all, okay? It was such a powerful move of God that the <clears throat> New York Times, I'm just gonna leave that right there. The New York Times in 1858 published this. The great waves of religious excitement which is now sweeping over this nation is one of the most remarkable movements since the Reformation. Travelers relate that in cars and in steamboats, in banks and markets, everywhere, through the interior, this matter has become an absorbing topic. Churches are crowded. Schoolhouses are converted into chapels. Converts numbered by the scores of thousands. In this city, we have beheld a site which not the most enthusiastic fanatic for church observances could ever have hoped to look upon. We have seen a business quarter of the city in the busiest assemblies of merchants, clerks, and working men to the number of 5,000 gathered a day for simple and solemn worship. It is most impressive. This is the New York Times. It is most impressive to think that over this great land, tens and fifties of thousands of men and women are putting themselves in a simple and serious way to the greatest question that can ever come before the human mind, what shall we do to be saved from sin? The New York Times. Now, fast forward just a few years to the 1940s. There's a tiny little island in northern, a little north of Great Britain. They're called the Hebrides Islands. On Lewis Island, there were two women in their 80s. By the way, Never underestimate the power of praying senior saints. Never underestimate the power of that. These two women in their 80s, they were grieved because they, they wanted to see a move of God among the young people in their city. So they decided to meet each other to pray and they became gripped by this verse from Isaiah 44. I will pour water on him that is thirsty and floods upon dry grounds. And these two women in their 80s, they began to pray and they began to pray till 3 or 4 a.m. Until eventually a young man wandered into the church, stood up, confessed his sin and fell down on the ground. And this simple act of vulnerable devotion, it cracked open the floor of heaven. The presence of God 
fell on the Hebrides Islands and so, so that there was like a tangible zone of the manifest presence of God. John Tyson talked about this at Encounter. Oh, the, just the presence of God supernaturally rested, fell on this island. Over 70% of the people that were converted during this revival, they didn't even make it to a worship service. Just the sense of God's presence had people pulling their horses and carts over in ditches, coming under conviction and giving themselves to Christ. Nearby, on another island nearby, the presence of God just tangibly, it like extended out into the ocean so that there, are, there were reports of immigrants coming, sailing around the top of England, passing around the top of Northern Ireland, and people on the boats were sending SOS messages to the shore saying, people are coming under the conviction of the Spirit, have chaplains ready at the landing to lead them to Christ. This did not happen for like a weekend or a day. Or, this happened for three years on this island until missiologists, they called it a, quote, burned out district. In other words, every person who would be saved was saved. The only people who weren't saved were people who were so hardened in their unbelief they were never gonna be saved. Burned out district. Uh, one more. Some of you, I'm just curious, make some noise. Who, uh, who has solid memories of the 1970s? Anybody? Who, where at you? Yeah, all right. Well, you know, I said make some noise. That's not the type of people to make noise. Okay, that's it. They'll raise their hand. That's it. Okay, 1970s. In 1966, if you remember, remember back, I, I don't. 1966, there was uh, the rise of secularism, especially, you know, on college campuses, rise of atheism, the birth of the sexual revolution, experimental drug culture starts to be a thing. And so unbelief is just sweeping and rising in the United States to the point that the cover of Time magazine in 1966 asked the question, is God dead? Now fix this in your heads, I'm coming back to it. So 1966, Time magazine is asking the question, is God dead? God I think like took that personally. And in the midst of the 70s, here's what was going on. You had racial tension, racial riots, rioting and looting, people distrust the government. There's radical gender, marriage and sexuality, ideology, rise, sexual revolution, the rise of godlessness and unbelief. Does any of this sound familiar? And y'all, sometimes what God does is he shakes a culture so that everything that can be shaken is gone and the only thing that's left are the things which can never be shaken. And God did that. This is what he did right here. He did that in the 70s. And uh, there was this dude, so the, the presence of God broke through. There was this dude, his name was Chuck Smith. Like, not, not, not like this young, hip, cool preacher. He was just like an older guy, tucked in shirt. Like, not good. He was just preaching verse by verse through the Bible in California. And all these hippies, like, started, like, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll. They start hearing the love of God in the scriptures and giving their lives to Christ. They start coming to Chuck Smith's church and the people in the church, little traditional people, they were like, man, like they're not taking a lot of baths, a little shady, they're barefoot and they're walking in from the beach so their, their feet are like messing up our church. So the people in the church demanded Chuck Smith stop them from coming because they were messing up the church. Chuck Smith had this just beautiful, he had a solution. So the next week he showed up at the front door of the church with a basin of water and he knelt down, and every single hippie that was there to hear about the love of Jesus, he personally hand-washed their feet on the way into the church. 
And what God did is this one simple act of devotion, it just sparked the love of God. There was this outpouring of the spirit. And so people by the hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands, all these hippies that were just sick of like, being degraded in this lifestyle, they start coming to Jesus and, uh, and this mass movement for salvation happens in this like hippie culture. This is a picture of Pirate's Cove in, uh, in California. You can see them, all these hippies, they're holding up a, a, a one finger because that was like their motto. Their mantra became, there's one way. Jesus is one way, the only way. And you know, there's this outpouring of the spirit. 4,500 people were baptized in a day right there outside of this church, so many people were converted. It swept all across the country, college campuses. So many people were converted that so in 1966, Time Magazine was asking the question, is God dead? Five years later in 1971, this was the cover of Time Magazine, the Jesus Revolution. The Jesus Revolution, sweeping the nation. And it culminated, y'all know, it culminated right in our backyard. In 1972, there, it was called Explo 72. This is, a, this is a picture of it. It was the largest, it's to this day, the largest ga- Christian gathering of, uh, of young adults in America. Almost 100,000 converted hippies descending on the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, Texas, y'all. <laughs> Dallas, Texas. The largest gathering in history. Now, let me ask this question, man. Do you believe that can happen again? Man, yes, it has and it will. The question is, who will experience it? Now, what you're getting ready to read in Nehemiah 7 and 8 is this, it's this, it's a revival. And here's the big idea, you have to understand this. The big idea is that God always reserves a remnant for revival. Like he always, sometimes it feels like, man, people are walking away from the faith, but God reserves a remnant and then he sparks the remnant for revival. But here's the big idea, but, but it has requirements. Like there's things that God's looking for where he's like, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm ready, let's, let's descend. So I wanna walk through those because I'll be really honest, man. I love seeing our church grow. I love seeing people saved. I, I love all the things. I love all the things. What I want more than anything else is to see a move of God in our generation. I want, I want it so bad. So let's go. This is what we see in Nehemiah 7. Number one, requirement number one, revival always starts with, I'm gonna use a big theological word here, reformation. Let me just say this. Sometimes people are like, Josh, you can't use big theological words in church. Man, my my mentality is if you can learn the language to order at Starbucks, I can use theological language at church. That's my mentality. So I'm gonna do it and you'll, you'll, you'll figure it out, man. We're big boys and girls in here. Revival starts with reformation. Now, let me define these terms. Revival is a return to the spirit of God. A reformation is a return to the word of God. These two things are always related, revival and reformation. You can't have a revival without reformation because the Spirit of God authored the Word of God, so the Spirit of God operates in tandem with the Word of God. And listen, wherever the Word of God is not preached, the Spirit of God is not active. You have to have, in your life, in a church, in a nation, there has to be a returning to the authority of the Word of God if you wanna see a move of the Spirit of God. This, in fact, is what triggers this thing in Israel in Nehemiah 8. Check this out. This is what it says, verse one. All the people, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna point some stuff out here. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told, I love it so much. They told Ezra, who was the preacher, the teacher of the law, I love it, it's like a chant, bring out the book, 
Bring out the book. It's like a game, man. Bring out the book. The whole arena's full. Bring out the book. Now, here, here's what. Normally what happens is the preachers beg the people to listen to the word. Well, I'll just, I'll just be honest, man. It's like my whole life. It's like begging you to listen to the word of God. Like, we, you know, we got all these buildings, we do all the lights, and, the, you know, got to have everything just right. We remind you on social media, and we got the app. We gotta, I'm, like, constantly reminding you, you got to get into the Word. When the Word and not the world is the majority of your week, your life will start to change. We do all the things. I got the LP News and the e We're, like, reminding you. And, like, we even, we plan the services so that, you'll, you know, they'll be powerful and compelling. I even, like, when I write my messages, I, like, I write them, and I just write all the, the Bible teaching. And then at the end, I'm like, oh man, here's where they're gonna get bored. Let me find a stupid little joke and I'll put it right in here. And I, I gotta like keep, like, I gotta keep your attention, you know? And, so if, and what I've noticed is if we do everything just right, you attend 1.7 times per month. <laughs> and then if the service is 64 minutes instead of 62 minutes, it's like 30% of you rush for the door at the end. We see you. That's it. <laughs> So this, so this is it. Usually it's the preacher is begging the people to listen to the word. When a revival happens, it flips. The people beg the preacher, give us more. We want more of the word. Go teach, go harder. Let's get deeper, man. Give us the word of God. This happens right here in Nehemiah 8. So they beg him, bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. And he read it aloud, <laughs> I love this, from daybreak till noon. It's a six-hour sermon. I don't want to hear any complaints anymore. That's a six-hour sermon, man. Now, I'll just say this. I just need to point this out. Six-hour sermon. Sometimes people are like, man, Josh, why, you know, why do you preach so long? I, you know, I'm, I'm usually, thir you know, usually 38 to 42 minutes right in there. And, and I'll, be, I'll be really honest. Like, a lot of times people are like, man, they're like, Josh, it'd just be, if you could get it down to 25 minutes, that'd be more convenient. And I'll be really honest, like it actually would be more convenient. We could turn our parking lots at our campuses faster, uh, which means we could add more services easier, which means we could actually like maybe even grow a little faster. It's like, man, if you could just get down to 25 minutes. But, but what, <laughs> if you could just give us like three jokes, two verses, and a poem, it would be awesome. Man. That's great. But and I, like I have literally tried, like I'm still trying to figure out how do I make it more concise. What I'm figuring out is I just, I can't do it. The reason I can't do it is because I talk for a long time about the things that I love. I, I, like, I, I like, I can't, like, I, I just do. I just, if I love it, I want to talk about it. I'll Listen, if I love it, I'll talk all day. You ask me about my, about my family, I'll talk all day, man. I'm gonna Eliana's tumbling her way in. She's a cheerleader for the Providence Lions, man. I'm loving it. I'm embarrassing her every single week. I, I'm having a blast, man. Felicity's got all A's right now. I'll tell you about how hard she, she's absolutely crushing. We finally at least got Hudson to stop peeing in the front yard facing the street. Like, you know, it's like baby steps, man. It's like, I'll talk about my family all day, all day long. Man, you wanna talk about bass fishing? I'll talk all day. Man, you wanna talk about quarterbacks? Let's talk about Joe Burrow's ankle. I can give you the whole thing. Lord, heal him right now. Lord, we need it right now. Today before noon, we need it. I'll talk about all that stuff. Man, when we come in here, y'all, we're talking about this. This stuff matters, man. This stuff matters. And I talked for a long time about the things that I love. And so here's my assumption. Is my, here's my assumption. You got your whole family up and fed and dressed. You got all the way over here. You managed the parking lot. You got down to your seat. You did all that work. I'm assuming you came because you wanted to hear the word of God. That's what I'm assuming you came to hear. And so this is what they do. It's like he tells them, daybreak until noon. And as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. And Ezra, the teacher of the law, 
stood on a, this is really important, high wooden platform built for the occasion. A high wooden platform built for the occasion. Now, can I point this out? So they built the platform so that the word of God would be above the people. This is really, really important. You gotta get this. There are two ways for you to relate to the word of God. Either the Bible stands in authority over you and God's word looks down on your life and it's the authority and the Bible says to you, that's right and that's wrong. That pleases God and that doesn't. That will lead to life and that will lead to death. The Bible stands in authority over you and the Bible judges you. What some people do is they wanna put the Bible down and I like, I wanna, there's like for the illustration, I wanna stand on it, but I literally cannot bring myself to stand on the Bible. So I'll just do this. What some people do is they get, they wanna get over the word and they look down at the word and they judge the word. Ah, I like that, I don't like that. That's true and that's not. That's good and that's antiquated. But listen, you have to understand this. God does not bless people. God blesses a place. The place he blesses is under his word. If you want your life to be blessed, put yourself under the authority of the word. That's where God commands his blessing. So this is what the people do, is they build this high platform to say, man, the word of God is our authority. And they gather in front of it. Now, I need to say some things right here. I said them at a counter, but only like half of our church was there. So I need, there's something I need to say that I just need a level set. I'll never have to say it again. Let me just move on to it. Man, you just need to know, we, I, I am going to unapologetically preach the Bible as it relates the whole Bible to the whole issues of our world. I am going to do that. Now, here's, here's why I need to talk about this. What some people think is, man, in order to get a move of God, you actually have to avoid parts of the word of God. Like, this is for real. Like, I was coached this way when I started, like, planting a church. I, started, I started leading a church, I should say that. Is people are like, man, if you want your church to grow, you need to avoid anything controversial and never preach anything higher than, like, a sixth grader could understand, Okay. Now, there's two problems with that. The first problem is like what the word actually says. The apostle Paul in the book of Galatians says, hey, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would no longer be a servant of Christ. In other words, he says, Paul's saying, if I gotta choose between offending you or omitting things the word says and offending God, my choice has been made. It's gonna be you. So number one, this is the, the Bible is the problem with that strategy. Here's the other problem with that strategy. It doesn't work. I, I just don't think it works. What, what I have found, the longer I'm a pastor, if you baby Christians, you get baby Christians. If you baby Christians, you get baby Christians. And what I found is the opposite, that when we will preach the whole counsel of God to the whole issues of our world, here's what I found. The harder I preach, the bigger we get. Because the word of God attracts the people of God. Now, this is the part I just need, I need to say it once and then I'll just, I, well, I'll just point back to what I said that one time in a sermon. Here's like the objection that I'll get now is like, I'll get this, is, man, Josh, sometimes you're getting political. You're getting political, okay? Now, can I just say this? Y'all can understand, we live in a culture now, guys, everything is political. 
Everything everywhere is political. If I preach on loving and reaching the Hispanic community, I'm getting political. If I preach on race, I'm getting political. If I preach on gender dysphoria and gender marriage and sexuality, I'm quote unquote getting political. If I preach on abortion and God's limitless love and forgiveness to women who have had them, I'm getting political. I mentioned Target in a sermon three weeks ago. I was like, oh, you shouldn't have mentioned that. What's he gonna do? You gonna start talking about Bud Light next? What are you gonna do? He going, he going all in, man. So let me just say this. <laughs> Gotta get that in there. <clears throat> Listen, I live in a world, we live in a world, I am pastoring in a world where everything is political. So if I wanna avoid being political, I have to stop being biblical. I will not do that. I will not do that. So listen, here's, here's what Nehemiah, here's what Nehemiah says. You want a move of God, here's what you do. Open the book, tell people what it says. The word of God attracts the spirit of God and the spirit of God attracts people. That's how you get a move. Now, let me apply this to you personally. You, if you want revival in your life spiritually, awakening in your family, all these things, the blessing of God, you have to have a, refer- a return to the word. You have to have it. And you gotta understand this, man something happens when you read the word. It gets on you and it gets in you and it starts to change you and change your family. That's what the word does. Here's why that happens. Because the word of God is not just a book. It's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces the thoughts and intents of the heart. So when you start to read the word of God, the spirit of God gets active and he releases his power into your life. That's when your life starts to change. Now, like everyone who reads the word, if you've been reading the word, at all, with any level of surrender in your heart, you have had this experience. (laughs) What's funny is everybody from different denominations, they call this experience different things, okay? Uh, Presbyterians, you know, they're all, Presbyterians are quiet. I never ask them to make noise. Presbyterians, they're like, here's what they say. They, they, They call it illumination. Oh, the spirit illuminated this to me in the text today. Presbyterians. Baptists, they'll say things like, oh, it it stood out to me. This stood out to me while I was reading the word today. People from a non-denominational background, they'll say, oh, this verse, it just jumped off the page. Uh, Our our Pentecostal brothers and sisters, they'll be reading it and they'll say, I got a rhema word in the scriptures today. Glory, you know, God spoke to me. Gen Z, young people, they say, sheesh. (laughs) You know, bussin'. You know, whatever it is, I don't know. <laughs> Man, it was awesome, you know, whatever it is. Now, here's the deal. <laughs> They're all talking about the same thing. They're talking about the reality that when we read the word, the word reads us because it's living and active. Because you can read a verse you've read a thousand times before and see something you've never seen before because the Holy Spirit is saying something to you he's never said before. The word is living and active, okay? So number one, revival requires uh, reformation. Okay, number two, reformation results in repentance. I'm gonna use an old school word. We don't use enough in the church anymore. This is a Bible word all throughout the Bible. Repentance, repentance from sin, conviction. This is a wonderful thing. There is a holiness without which no one will see God, the Bible says. And this is a good thing. Check this out, Nehemiah 8, 9. Watch what happens as he's doing a six-hour sermon. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn or weep. They just started reading the Bible and people in mass start weeping. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Now, they're weeping 
This is a word the Bible calls conviction. Let me explain this, okay? Especially if you're a new Christian. Let me help you explain an experience you're having. Because the Holy Spirit is holy, when he gets around unholy things, he gets uncomfortable. Now, when you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. So now, when you sin, the Holy Spirit inside of you gets uncomfortable, and that makes you uncomfortable. That's called conviction. Conviction. Now, watch this. Conviction is the emotion, but the purpose of emotion is to put you in motion. So conviction is the emotion of grieving sin. Repentance is the motion of turning away from sin. Now, conviction, you got to get this. It feels bad, but y'all, it's so good because conviction leads to repentance. That means to turn, and, and repentance is an exit ramp off a highway that leads to death. Do you understand this? That sin leads to death. Like, guys, when God gives us command, when God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. God doesn't give us commands because he loves rules. He gives us commands because he loves you. And watch this, sin, it leads to death. Think about what the Bible says about sin. James, the book of James says, sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. The book of Genesis says, the sin is crouching at your door. It desires to devour you, devour. Like here, here's my analogy. You guys ever seen those, uh, those news stories of like somebody that was, they were like keeping a wild animal, like, like big game, like a big cat. And they were growing it like a lion or a tiger in their house. And then eventually, like, it grows up, it becomes an adult, and it, like, eats their face off. And then they always do the interview with, like, the family member or the neighbor, and they're like, man, I'm just so surprised. I, I just, I can't believe this happened. I don't understand. And I'm reading, I'm going, I, I understand. Yeah, I do. Because you were literally keeping a lion in your house. And lions don't sit on laps. Lions eat faces off. Like, that's literally what they were designed to do. You gotta understand, this is, this is how sin works, is you think, I'll just keep it in its place, it'll stay right there, the addiction, the thing, it won't grow any bigger, it's gonna stay right there. No, 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 it's gonna get fully grown and it's gonna eat your face off. And conviction is when the Holy Spirit says, that's not who you are. You don't have to do the things you used to do anymore because in Christ, you're not the person you used to be anymore. And repentance is the action of turning away from this. Now, the worst thing about sin is not its consequences. The worst thing about sin is that sin forfeits the presence of God in our lives. That's the worst thing. There is a holiness without which no one will see God. I, I, here's so, I'm a, I got Jana's permission to tell this story on our anniversary, and, uh, and I'm, I'm revealing how immature I was as a 22-year-old newly married man, okay? So first year married, it just heads up for, all, for you guys to get married. When you get married, there's like all these things from single life that you didn't even think, oh, I'm gonna have to change that. And then you get married and you're like, oh, I gotta, I gotta get change that. This is one of mine, okay? So like we get married, it's like first few months of marriage. It's like the dawn of Facebook. It's like 05, right? So like I'm responding to all these DMs on Facebook from old college friends. And I'm responding to one of them. Jana walks in the room and it's a girl. I'm responding to, it's a girl. It's a, a friend from college. Jana walks in and she sees it and she sees the profile picture and she just says, who's that? And the hair on the back of my neck just began to, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but it's definitely something and it's not gonna go well for me, you know? She's like, who's that? I'm like, oh, but it's just a friend. And Jana's like, wow, did, uh, did y'all ever date, you know? And I'm like, man, I'm just gonna be totally honest. So I'm like, oh, we never dated. You know, she, 
she did want to for a little while, but, but, we, but we never dated, but we're just friends. And Jana said, not anymore. That's what she said. She said, not anymore. That's what she said. Now, I'm hearing some amens, some high-pitched amens. This is what I just heard. Not anymore. Now, some of you right now, you're like, oh, you know, you're like, oh, Josh, you, y'all should be more progressive and enlightened and gender enlightened. And she, she should have been okay with that, okay? Not Jana. Jana's a woman. And so Jana's mentality was, if I'm in, she's out. If I'm in, she's out. Now, listen. There's some, those are feminine claps is what that is. <laughs> That's what that was right there. Now, now listen, guys, the Bible says that the church is the bride of Jesus Christ, that we have been intimately wed to him in a relationship. And there are things in our lives that God looks at and he says, if I'm going to be in, that's out. That's repentance. That's repentance. And when, when we get rid of those things, we get more God. Repentance is understanding there's not enough room in our lives for both God and sin. Repentance is getting rid of the sin so we can get more God. This, there is no revival without repentance. There is none. So that's number two. Now check this out. Number three is it's the best part. Repentance restores rejoicing. Repentance always leads to rejoicing. Check this out. Nehemiah 8. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people, check it out, lifted their hands. That's biblical. You see that? Lifted their hands. And responded, amen, amen. And they bowed down and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now check out the joy language here. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Then all the people went away to eat and drink and send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that it made known to them. Now, some of you may be reading this and you're like, whoa, it sounds like they were weeping and rejoicing at the same time. You're right. Do you know why they were doing that? Because when the presence of God draws near, two realities become very hot in your heart. I am a great sinner, but he is a great savior. I am a great sinner, but he is a great, weeping and rejoicing, but repentance always leads to rejoicing. Now you may be going, okay, Josh, so why are they so like, just kind of jacked up with joy? Why is it? Check this out, man. I love this so much, okay? Israel had been in active, disgusting rebellion against God for 142 years, but they were restored to the love of God in one day, one day. Now, do you know why that is? I want to explain this, man. This is the best part of the sermon right here. I want to explain. Do you know why that is? Because the love of God is something that is received. It is not achieved. That is so, it's the most important reality you'll ever understand. Uh, you guys, um, I don't know how many of y'all are on TikTok. I'm going to like not lose 90% of you and gain 10% of you, and I'm willing to pay that price. So I'm like scrolling the TikTok the other day, and there's this, uh, there's a trend called girl math. Is that you? <laughs> yeah, 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 I hear you. It's girl math. And so like, here's the, the little video. It was like this girl in a department store with her friend. And she looks down and she's got these pants on that she loves. She looks at the price tag and they're $250 pants. And at first she's like, oh, you know. But then <laughs> she starts like, you see her wheels turn and like a light bulb pops on and she goes, well, you know what though? Is I'll, I'll probably wear these pants like about 50 times. So they're really like $5 per wear is what they are. And then her friend goes, um, in the little video, her friend goes, and $5, that's just, that's just the price of uh, the coffee you get every day. 
And then she goes, oh, you know, I'll just, when I wear these pants, I won't get the coffee. These pants are free. Okay. And you see that? And it went like hashtag girl math is what it did. (laughs) Now, let me just say this. I don't know anything about girl math. In fact, I am actively opposed to girl math. But I know a lot about God math. And here's God math. You could have been in rebellion against your Savior for 142 years, 142 months, 142 days. You can be restored to his love in a single day. In a day. One day. Today. That can happen today, man. Check this out. Because what the Bible says is when you place your faith in Christ, God does a trade with you. Jesus trades you, like he goes, give me all your sin, I'll give you all my righteousness, and I will impute my righteousness. The righteousness of God gets laid on top of you the minute you place your faith in Jesus, so that now when God looks at you, he doesn't see sinful you, he sees perfect Jesus. So that's why the love of God is received, it's not achieved. In fact, this is why the Bible, all throughout the Bible, it says, calls everyone who's placed their faith in Jesus, it calls you a saint. Ephesians 2.19 You are no longer strangers and aliens. You are saints and members of the household of God. Now, let me me finish it like this. I just, I want y'all to see this, okay? There are two ways to become a saint. There's the Catholic way and there's another way. Now, Catholics, I love y'all, man. There's a lot, I know there's a lot. I hear from y'all a lot, man. There's a lot of you. I love you. I'm not against you. I just need to correct some theology really quick, okay? Now, I got this, what I'm getting ready to do, I got from Joby Martin. He is my preacher. I listen to him every Monday. I love this so much. So two ways to become a, a saint. The Catholic way or another way. Now, in the Catholic church, if somebody wants to become a a saint, it's a four-step process. Step one is there has to be cause for your beatification and canonization. So somebody else has got to nominate you. So, and, 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 oh, by the way, you got to be dead for five years. So like, you don't even get to find out if you made it. You know, it's like kind of a bummer. So you got to be dead for five years and somebody got to think like, that dude was an awesome guy, okay? If you get that, then step two is the Catholic church creates a case and they bring all this documentation of your heroic virtue to this big panel of people in funny hats and, and they look at all your life. They kind of investigate everything and, uh, and all these cardinals take a vote. And if you pass the vote, you become a quote, venerable servant of God. If you pass step two, step three is a toughie. You got to do a miracle. That's a toughie. So it's like, man, you got to Somewhere along the way, you gotta have worked up a miracle. And if somebody claims you did a miracle, like they, they take this real serious. They get everybody together. They like do a bunch of interviews and eyewitness like Christian Mythbusters. They like get all up into it. They're like looking at all this stuff and doing interviews. And if they're like, man, he, she, they, they actually did a miracle. Then they do all these interviews and they vote. And if you pass step three at the vote, step four, it's like, man, you got over one hump. Step four is you gotta do a second miracle. Like, man, I already did a miracle. And it's like, trying to work up another miracle. Now, if you get two miracles, you're a pretty good guy. You've been dead five years. The Pope can perform a ceremony of canonization and you become a saint. And when you become a saint, one, they are positive that you're in heaven. And two, your job as a saint is like to help people who are still on earth. And that's why Catholic people pray to saints. Like, man, the Lord's probably a little busy. And so I'm gonna pray to this saint. He's probably a little more time on his hands. And I'm I'm gonna do that, okay? Now, in the Catholic church, there are patron saints for like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like all kinds of stuff. There's a, I love, some of these are funny. There's a, there's a patron saint of accountants in April. You can, that's who you need to figure out, all you accountants, call that saint. There's a patron saint of abdominal pains, okay? It's like state fair. Some of y'all have been having too many Fletcher's corn dogs. This is a patron saint you need. This is who you need. Uh, there's a patron saint of bachelors <laughs> and there's 10 of them. So single dude, there are 10 guys in heaven trying to get you a date. That's what that means, Okay. <laughs> 
There's a patron saint of breastfeeding. Amazing, wonderful, beautiful. There's a patron, <laughs> patron saint of clowns. <laughs> patron saint of dentists. Patron saint of gallstones. There is a patron saint of hangovers. I, in a, in early services, there were people like, oh man, oh yes, amen, amen. Hey. <laughs> this is one of my favorites. There's a patron saint of unattractive people. <laughs> That, that guy is helping more people than, than y'all realize he is. Uh, there's a patron saint of spas. And here's what's awesome about this one. <laughs> this is no joke. The patron saint of spas is John the Baptist. <laughs> Do y'all, that's the least Belfiore guy in the whole Bible. Like John the Baptist, like never shaved, wore camel's hair, ate grasshoppers, spitting and cussing. Like that's least spa guy in the whole Bible, Okay. There's a patron saint, he didn't cuss. I don't know why I threw that in there. <laughs> Take that out. <clears throat> There's a patron saint of anything that goes boom. Michael Parsons, patron saint. There's a patron saint of disappointing children. <laughs> I'm gonna move right on. There's a patron saint, No, I'm no joke. There's a patron saint for girls from rural areas. There's a patron saint for uh, girls that are forny campus. That's what that means. That's amazing, man. <clears throat> now, Here's your amen moment. It's income and make it worth my delay in my flight. You can become a saint that way and you're gonna have to work really hard and be really good and it may take you 142 years or there's a shortcut. You can in one moment place your faith in Jesus Christ and receive his perfect righteousness. And in that moment, every sin you've ever committed is gone and his righteousness is imputed on you and you are seen by God as perfect, beloved in his sight. Listen, guys, God loved so he gave and if you believe, you will receive. Some of you are like, yeah, yeah, man, but like, Josh, you don't understand what I've done. No, 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 you don't understand what he did. He stretched out his hands and had nails go through his hands and his ankles, and he was crucified for your sin, canceling the record of death that was held against you so that now God sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus for anybody that placed their faith in him. You may be going, yeah, Josh, but it's, you know, it's too late. I've already done it. I already messed up. Listen, it's too late to prevent it. It is never too late to reverse it and redeem it by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's never too late for that. Man, so God loves, so he gave. And if you believe, you will receive, and that can happen today. And some of you, that needs to happen like today. And so right now at all of our campuses, I want you to, would you bow your heads and close your eyes right now? And some of you right now, you've been hanging out here, man. It's getting on you. Something's changing inside of you. You're, you're like, man, so, something's happening to me. And you're realizing that you need to cross a line of faith and give your life to Christ. And if that's you, then I just want you to pray this prayer with me from a sincere heart right now, silently in your seat, just like whisper it to God. Just say, God, I know I'm a sinner and that I've put other things besides you first. But I believe that you died for my sin. I believe that somehow, in some way, the cross counted for me. And from a sincere heart, pray this, from this day forward, as best as I know how, I will live for you first. Thank you, God, for adopting me as a son or a daughter. I receive the free gift of your salvation apart from anything I've ever done, simply as a gift. Now, without saying amen, keeping your heads bowed and your eyes closed, man, if you prayed that prayer to cross a line of faith today, man, on the count of three, I want you to raise your hand. I want you to raise your hand like you mean it. Like lock that elbow, man. 
And here's why I'm saying that is because something solidifies in you spiritually when you respond physically. So on the count of three, you're crossing a line today. One, God loves you. Two, you came here for a reason today. Three, right now, wherever you're at, I want you to raise your hand right now, like real high, like lock that elbow, man. Like, man, I'm coming home. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm crossing the line today. Like, I belong to Jesus. I receive that gift right now in your seat, man. Wow, wow. Man, amen, amen, amen. Hey, Lake, y'all put them put down. Lake One family, can we celebrate with like dozens and dozens of dozens of brothers and sisters that are coming home, man, amen. Thanks for listening today. For more biblical teaching and worship, Join us for our church online live weekend services on Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. For more information about all the digital ministries of Lake Point, visit lakepoint.church/digital. digital.